Hello and welcome to the King's Fund podcast, where we explore the big issues and ideas in health and care. In this episode, we'll be asking, what does the future of health and care look like from the perspective of three young leaders and how can they help to shape that future? I'm Jo Vigor, and to help me answer this question, I'm joined by three wonderful guests, Hannah McCaffrey, Registered Manager at Richmond Fellowship, Rini Jones, Senior Policy and Research Manager at Marie Curie, and Beth Sutherland, Senior Project Manager in the National Ambulance Team at NHS England. Hannah, Rini and Beth, welcome to the podcast. Hi Jo. Thanks for having us. Lovely to see all of you. I'm really, really excited about this episode and I think we will be learning lots about your perspectives of being leaders in the health and care system at this point in time. So what attracted you to working in the health and care system and what surprised you about it as you've come in? So Rini, I'm going to ask you first. Sure. Yeah, it's a question I've been asked quite a lot, um, especially from my more seasoned colleagues in this space why would you want to tackle these really entrenched issues for for me I grew up in um in a really medical household both my parents are doctors a lot of my cousins um uncles aunts back home in India are medics as well nurses so it's something I um was surrounded by growing up the move from India to England and seeing the differences in the in um the health and care systems and also the really entrenched inequity in the provision of healthcare in particular really motivated me to use my voice, use my kind of more politicised skills to be able to affect some really meaningful change in the space. And I think what surprised me the most is how circular it can sometimes seem. So, um, for example, the conversation on health inequalities has been going on for decades and a lot of the same points have been raised multiple times but yet uh, despite that very little action has been taken. Hannah can I come to you next? Yeah so I I started off working in the kind of social care sector as a care assistant again kind of runs in the family Uh, quite a lot of my family have got care and support needs always been in an environment where uh, we've needed health and social care services and and they've become quite prominent in our lives growing up. So for me, kind of working in this sector, contributing to a cause that I feel so kind of deeply about, and whether that's supporting vulnerable populations, addressing social issues. I, I started off recruiting volunteers into services and seeing the difference that made and kind of progressed from there to a team manager role within the organisation and then to registered manager. So I've seen the different stages of it where... You're actively involved on that ground level. You're you're supporting these people day in and day out to now being the person that can implement certain changes and certain agreed ways of working to make those positive changes to support people to live independently, to move on with their lives, to get the care and support they need to to be able to do all those things and achieve their outcomes. And again, from your perspective, was there anything that surprised you when you've come into the role that you've got now? Honestly, all of it. The system is so complicated, it is so wide. There is so many different types of services, different areas of expertise. It's not just one service that will support an individual. There are many different services involved. There's the local, for us, for instance, and we work for a mental health care home. There's the community mental health team, there's the practitioners, there's hospitals, the GPs, there's 
social workers, care coordinators, there's a whole magnitude of people and professionals that go into supporting people. And I think for me, seeing how these people can work together from different backgrounds with different areas of expertise was was really surprising. That point about how to deal with complexity as a leader and as you all go further into your careers um, is going to be really, really important. So thank you. Beth, coming to you now. Yeah, in terms of what attracted me to working in the health and social care sector, my first ever proper job was in a community pharmacy. And I worked there kind of whilst I was at um, kind of school and, and sixth form. And it really gave me into, in, an insight into how important NHS organisations and institutions are to the local community. You know, I'd see the same people day in, day out and how important it was that they had a good relationship with their pharmacist um, and their GP as well. Um, so seeing the kind of the, the impact that that would have on people's lives. And then I went to university, I studied biology, I thought I was kind of going to go into the academic PhD route and then very swiftly realised that lab work was not for me and I wanted to kind of do more team working. And then kind of, yeah, had in the back of my mind those experiences of working in the NHS and then saw the NHS graduate management training scheme and really appealed to me to kind of understand from that level how to enact change. Um, And the policy and strategy specialism appealed to me because of kind of that analytical background that I had. Quite also wanted to have the chance to kind of do a bit of blue sky thinking that you can sometimes get to do in policy and strategy as well to see kind of longer term how you want to enact change. So, yeah, that's kind of what, what drew me in. In terms of what I find I found the most surprising and still do is kind of how the histories of the NHS, its different parts and the staff within it can still really be felt today. And that, you know, affects how stakeholders work together now. And also surprising and maybe disappointing in terms of how political short termism can really get in the way of real change and how difficult that can be for people working within the system um, when there's really great ideas but sometimes it's really difficult to implement them because of the different challenges being experienced so yeah the complexity and sometimes how difficult it is to get good ideas off the ground. Thanks Beth. Um, Let's just have a think about this concept of young leader. Did you actually self-identify as a leader or has it only been when somebody said to you doing a great job you're such a great leader in this space? Rini, can we just start with you and then maybe go to Beth and Hannah? Yeah, sure. It's it's such a it's such a good question. And um, no, I don't self identify I still don't self-identify as a leader. I think when I got the the invite to this podcast, I, my eyebrows were raised. I think that's really common amongst young women. I think it's even more common amongst young women of colour. When I really think about kind of what makes a leader or, you know, when you imagine what a leader is in your head, or if you were to Google kind of workplace leader, you can imagine kind of a middle-aged white man. Like people that look like me are very rarely called leaders and that's reflected in the nonprofit sector more broadly. So I think it's 3% of all nonprofit CEOs are racialized or minoritized ethnic, the, the rest are white. And less than 10% of the staff are racialized in general. So, you know, being in this space, you do feel othered quite a lot, um, especially in, in policy, especially when moving in parliamentary circles, in academic research circles, as I often have to do. So that I think for me, it's when I get people who are even more junior coming up to me and asking me, you know, how did you get into this? I really want to work in in policy. I'm I'm really politicised and I care about social justice. Like how do I do that? Because I think the, the roots in can be really mystifying. So for me, I feel, I only really feel like a leader when I'm helping other 
usually women of colour in the sector. And that's, that's the honest truth. It's when they ask me about my expertise or if I, if I'm asked by colleagues or you're the expert in this particular field, can you come along to this event or can you speak to this um, parliamentarian? That's when I'm like, Oh, I actually no, you're right. I do. I do actually know quite a lot. So there's a lot of moving parts in it. When we talk about intersectionality, I think that's exactly what it is. Like I'm, I'm not just a young woman. I'm also racialized and how I'm perceived as well. And I've seen, you know, firsthand how poorly I can be perceived as well as how well I can be perceived. So there's, it's a real tightrope is what I'd say. I don't know if I'll ever feel like a leader. And I don't know if that's an indictment on myself or <laughs> the sector more broadly, but that's, that's the honest answer. Thanks, Rini. I think some things to hold on to there. There's something commonly called imposter syndrome. And even as you get further on in your leadership journey, in your career, you'll find that many people, even very senior people, still feel like they've got that little bit of imposter syndrome going on. And I'd love to spend some time unpacking that whole area about intersectionality and what it means when you're saying people get othered and and that experience as well and what advice you'd have for people. So thank you. So Beth, can we come on to to you now? Yeah, sure. Um, And I think, yes, I'm Latorini. I don't I self-identify as a leader you know the imposter syndrome is something that I think everyone struggles with being on the NHS graduate management training scheme it's kind of slightly different because leadership is quite a has a heavy focus we do uh the Elizabeth Gareth Garrett Anderson course um in healthcare leadership as part of it so we kind of are introduced to leadership styles um reflecting on our own styles and our styles of others so you kind of have that present with you but a lot of the time I kind of felt like I was kind of doing that analysis on other people and kind of not on myself but what did help me was um the kind of the first placement I I joined there was an allyship group there and I felt like actually from my time as a university student and just my interest in social justice, I had something to offer in that group. And even though I was a really junior member of staff and I was really new, I took a leading role in that allyship group to kind of understand and map out how that group could kind of, you know, um, we created an allyship pledge um, and, you know, tried to implement um, and make sure that everyone kind of had an anti-racist objective in their yearly personal development plan and things like that. So that helped me feel a bit more of a leader because I felt like I knew something in that space. Um, and I think that really helped shape my understanding of leaders can be at any level in all organisations. And what I think I take from it is that the best role you can play as a leader is helping empower other people to step into their leadership positions you know it doesn't matter what band you are what grade you are if you have an idea and you think that you have a, a you know you can affect change then you should be empowered and enabled to do that and that's probably the the most impactful thing a leadership can do it's very much about what you're you're doing for other people rather than the other way around Hannah how would you respond to that question so I think for me it's definitely a case of imposter syndrome every day when dealing with even questions from the staff team questions from the people we support questions from people in the organization you have a minute of of self-doubt like is that right have I given the right advice and then when people come back in even you get really good feedback you get compliments you get we have people come and inspect the service we have audits and it's all really positive and you take a minute and think I do know what I'm doing. There's, there's a reason I'm in this role, but it's definitely a case of imposter syndrome. Every day I feel like, oh, how have I ended up here? And should I be doing this? And especially when you're in a bigger organisation when there's lots of people with similar roles, but there's lots of RMs across Richmond Fellowship. 
but being able to contribute to that being a part of that kind of, of working together group and and similar to what Beth said when your feedback's recognized and when you make suggestions or you suggest something that works in your particular service and that's adopted then by the organization or by the other RMs as as good practice and yeah you, it, you definitely think maybe I'm all right in this role but I think that feeling of imposter syndrome doesn't necessarily go away I mean I've been in a management role now for just just over two years and registered with CQC for just over a year I'm hoping in the future I'll feel more like more confident I'd say but it's challenging isn't it And, and I and the advice I can offer you is that as you go further in your career you learn how to manage that little voice in your head that's going can I do this? Can I do this? And it's it's about the, the approaches and techniques to help you manage that through. I just wanted to touch back on this point about you're all three women leaders. And really, you talked also about being from a black and ethnic minority background as well. Do you think the experience has changed for women in leadership, particularly? Um, I'm just, you know, today or this week, we've been hearing about the discrimination that's being reported by women in surgery. Do you think things are changing for women from what other people have said to you, other women who are a bit further on in their careers? I think there's still a lot of equality issues within the health and social care sector that need to be addressed. But I definitely think we're making more noise now as I say, a lot of my role models, they are either my line managers or work in the operations, work in head office, are female. And I think, especially as a young leader at 22 years old, that's really inspiring to see that like my area manager's female, her manager's female. They've got to where they are. Yes, there's more work that needs to be done, but it is going in the right direction. I would just kind of add that the NHS is overwhelmingly female, so there's no shortage of female role models to look up to. For example, the uh, NHS England chief exec, Amanda Pritchard, is, is is a woman. But I think that that doesn't mean that we should think that the job is done. For example, NHS England has just launched a sexual safety charter. And whilst that's great, the fact that we need a sexual safety charter for organisations to sign up to speaks volumes in of itself. And I think that there is, you know, some things to be done around that you know leadership in women doesn't mean emulating what male leadership has looked like in the past and about stepping into you know what does what does female leadership look like and what does leadership more generally look like and how can that change from from the past it's a, it's it's really conflicting territory again for me because i can't i can't separate out those two identities that i have and i have others as well and yes i see a lot of white women in leadership i see a lot of it what i don't see is racialized leadership what I don't see is widespread disabled leadership or um, LGBTQ plus leadership or intersections of all of those in all of my roles I've come up against discriminatory behavior whether I've reported it or not Um, but what I will say is some of the worst discrimination I've faced has been from white women so when I t- when I think about women in leadership, it's a real conflicting feeling for me, um, and I think that will probably be echoed by a lot of racialized staff in the NHS, in social care, and in the BCSE sector. That we're spoken about a lot, but we're often not in the decision making positions. And this is my first, I guess, decision making position. I've worked in policy in more junior roles before, 
what has changed actually what has what I've been more empowered to do is be much more vocal about it. Um, when I first started out in policy, I was very cautious about raising this or raising interactions that I'd faced in like a parliament context or in a policy event context with my colleagues because I thought they'd take me less seriously. Now I'm very, very vocal about it because the ramifications are very, very real and um, it's a microcosm of what happens, I guess, in our organisations compared to what patients, families, carers face. So I feel a huge responsibility. Whether I should feel that responsibility or not is another question, but I do feel a huge responsibility. What would you like to see change? Because you've absolutely brought that, shone a light on that intersectionality. So for you, what would be one thing that you would like to see change now that you're in a decision-making role? What I really want to see is an acknowledgement that structural oppression exists and then action to tackle it. What I've seen in the VCSE sector, in um, the NHS and in government is a denial. It's a denial that it exists and um, a huge backlash because of it. I think acknowledging that it exists is, is is a very low bar, but then moving forward... I mean, I can get into heavy policy speak around, you know, a cross-sector government plan to tackle health inequity that addresses wider determinants of health. Obviously, I, I, I really want that to be a reality. I think it's within the realms of reality. I just I want more courage from people who occupy positions of power um, in, our, in our respective sectors because it doesn't work in just the VCSE sector. We need to see it in the NHS. We need to see it in social care. We need to see it in government for it to work and it, to be properly resourced, when I think about just even on the workforce issue and in social care in particular, and, and Hannah, please correct me if I'm wrong, like the most precariously employed, the most undervalued, yet the most <laughs> one of the most diverse ethnically workforces and yet historically underfunded. It's All of this is very, very interlinked. And I think we've all said that we have kind of we're in these roles because they're aligned to our values. If we have skin in this game, we want to see, yeah, we want to see that change and action being taken rather than words being spilled. We're in the kind of roles we are because we've got a passion for it, because it aligns with our personal values, because we see how powerful the sector can be and how much it's needed and how much kind of progression there is to make. And I think starting off so young in our careers you're filled with all these ideas about we can do this and we can do that but that requires the health and social care sectors working with the government working with local councils working with the NHS all that integrated work and that partnership working it's not going to be one organization one person one one sector on their own that's going to make that difference and I think there's definitely been positive changes but nowhere near enough We'll be back in a moment. Are you interested in exploring innovative and inclusive approaches to meeting the workforce challenges facing the health and social care sector? Join us at our virtual conference, Those Who Dare, Thinking Differently About the Health and Care Workforce, on the 4th and 5th of October. At the event, we'll cover areas including recruitment, retention, wellbeing, equity, diversity and inclusion. Sign up via the link in our show notes or on the King's Fund website. Welcome back. 
you've all talked about having voice and skin in the game and agency. You're talking about your own agency. What's your experience of having your voice recognised by older and senior leaders? And what tips have you got for other people struggling to do that? So, Beth, do you want to kick kick us off there? Yeah, sure. There have been times where I feel maybe I've, I've struggled to have my, my voice heard by, you know, more experienced colleagues. And I think that's one because of my, you know quote unquote like relative inexperience in an area but I think also there's a there's a role to play within teams and other leaders of you know understanding that people come to roles with potentially a fresh pair of eyes for things and you can look at things in a slightly different way and I think that the utilization and, and valuing of lived experience is so so I can't, I can't overstate the importance of that but not using it as a um as a buzzword the onus is, is on us working with our partners to be really actively listening out there, including people in social care, for example, in the voluntary and community sector as well. So we're not in an echo chamber of what we think is the right thing to do is super important. Absolutely, Beth, absolutely. And, and Hannah and Rini, if you if you take some of the concepts that Beth talked about there and look at that in terms of colleagues and the workforce that you, the people that you work with, what would be the one thing that you would say to them about helping them to have their voice in a room or recognised? There were times where I would like deliberately silence myself because of fear of backlash if I'm talking about certain concepts that I know aren't popular um, to that audience. What's been absolutely essential um, has been outside of the workforce that I'm currently in or outside of the colleagues I also work with. I organise with... um, um, with a collective called Charity So White, for a racial justice campaign. And we've been working for three years on dismantling the kind of structural racism that's in the charity sector. And working with them has really empowered me to then go into the spaces that I go into, the overwhelmingly male, white spaces that I go into, to speak with authority and and I do have authority there is both lived and learned experience here and there's a reason why I've been asked to go or there's been a reason why I've been why I'm in that room so I think that's a really important part especially if anyone's listening who is marginalized multiply marginalized like it's so vital to have that community and if you can't find it in your workplace because your workplace is very white find it outside of it and Hannah what what would be the one thing that you would advice you would give to others to bring their voice and and I think Rini you talked about bringing your authority and your agency into your work what would you say the importance of advocating for yourself advocating for your team advocating for the people that you support those kind of strong communication and interpersonal skills they not only motivate yourself they motivate the people around you and I think without giving direct advice by just being that person who even if you're not completely confident in yourself, being that person, coming across confident, advocating for yourself, really just encouraging people without directly doing it, I think that inspires so many people. And that that resilience and and really taking time for your self-care strategies and for looking after your own well-being and just feeling it like empowered in yourself, I think that that really goes a long way. So I'd like now to really get your thoughts on the future of our sector. You know, you've come in, you've recognised it's complex, there's a lot of stuff going on, there's levels of discrimination, you've talked about 
being leaders in your own right and you're still here and you're still coming to work every day. So what do you think or hope the health and care system will look like in the future? What I'd really like to see is kind of, we know that especially coming out of, you know, the pandemic's not over, but coming out of the height of the pandemic and those those really entrenched inequities being um, exposed in a way that I don't think they have been before, certainly not in my living memory. What I really want to see for the health and social care system is top-down government action on addressing health inequalities across the life course from cradle to grave. If black women are four times more likely to die in in childbirth and racialised people are even less likely to receive end-of-life care than their white counterparts. We know that this is a whole life course issue. And when we hear, I hear a lot of speak about prevention, you know, preventing those experiences, preventing adverse end-of-life experiences is part of that. That is an example of poor health. So for me, what I really want to see is targeted, coherent and cross-department government action on that. So for me, from the social care sector, I know there's a lot of work going on at the moment to kind of reintroduce that partnership work in now. We're coming to the end of the pandemic to reintroduce those face-to-face appointments, those, that really connection between social and healthcare. I know there's been a lot of work gone on, but for us, when so we're 18 to 65 care home, whereas I think a lot of the integrated working is between older adults and the NHS and, and healthcare services. Um, there's things like the community res- urgent community response, which is for care homes, but again, it's for predominantly older adults. Um, there's like the GP ward rounds and things like that, that although we are a care home, we kind of miss out on that kind of thing. So that integrated working, I think there needs to be a really big push for better systems, for partnership working, for that early intervention services, that inclusivity that that people who have social care needs also have their health care needs met. At the moment, it's very much one element of that can be done. However, there's barriers to having that kind of holistic approach. Kind of the question, what would I like to see? I've got a list as long as my arm, to be honest, Joe. Um, but I'd say working in the sector, I think we're so often reminded of the constraints that we're working under, whether it be kind of financial resources or just having the time to step back and think about the bigger picture but actually at my time at the fund working on a project about how we can simultaneously tackle elective backlogs and health inequalities together really demonstrated to me that because of the constant operational pressures we often miss those opportunities for innovation and I really hope in the future we can start to move from thinking of priorities as disparate asks of the system and start to identify how we can marry some of this work together for the benefit of patients and I spend a lot of my time thinking about workforce because that's what my role is primarily focused on I I really want people to be confident the NHS and the wider sector can offer them a really clear and rewarding career pathway that they will be supported in navigating. And, you know, the opportunities to meaningfully contribute and impact people's lives in this sector is kind of unrivaled. So I want to see people excited about starting their careers, feeling assured that they'll have the support in their workplaces that are free of cultures of bullying and harassment, and hope to see initiatives to widen access and supporting diversity, and that this diversity is really celebrated. And kind of my last big kind of call to you know other decision makers is I really hope we utilize public appetite for change to drive transformation notably within public health you know we think about things like the 2007 smoking ban and a lot at the time lots of people thought 
it truly couldn't happen, but it was really strongly supported by the public. There's a lesson in that to platform and listen to the ambitious voices of people and patients because often they're they're further ahead than we are. And if we look at this area of integration and the need for collaborative leadership behaviours, from your perspectives, what do you think should be different about the way that culture is developed and leaders lead? A lot of leadership work is focused on individual leaders. You sometimes run the risk in organisations that their leadership only lasts as long as they do in the organisation. So once they leave, then, you know, potentially toxic or unhelpful behaviours and cultures can start to creep back. So I think it's really about going really, really deep into your organisation and seeing what the norms are, what the values are there. I'd like to see a lot less ego. I can say this with both my charity, quote unquote, leadership role on at Marie Curie and my campaigning role with Charity So White. It's something we talk about a lot. There is a, um, a cult of personality in a lot of campaigning spaces and I want to move away from that I think we desperately need to move away from that and move move away from a kind of scarcity mindset especially as as the VCSE sector as the charity sector we're not competing with each other but me and end-of-life care palliative and end-of-life care I'm not competing with mental health services I'm not competing with maternity it's not a question of either or it's a question of and we should be demanding more this that I think really like shocks people that um, charitable hospices are some of the biggest providers of specialist palliative and end-of-life care but are only a third funded from statutory sources two-thirds comes from fundraising if that was maternity I think there'd be riots it should be a source of shame when I talk about kind of moving away from a scarcity mindset, I talk about, you know, us working with our sector partners at Marie Curie. We work really closely with our sector partners in this space. Um, I know in the mental health space, there are loads of coalitions as well and doing really great campaigning joint asks. And that's where we see really seismic change, legislative changes um, that have been achieved in the past few years because of like really powerful joint campaigning. So I think, yeah, moving away from personalities, moving away from scarcity to actually, if one wins, we all win. And if we focus our efforts on those who are at the sharpest edge of inequity, like who are most affected, it's it cascades down, it cascades outwards as well, it improves services for everybody. So I think that's what I'd really like to see. I think we've seen in the past few years just how dangerous it can be to rely on the, on the passion and the energy of committed individuals. It should be a structural and systematic change rather than burning individuals out. Absolutely, really. I think it's the, for me and the, the research we've been doing, it's that shift towards collaborative, true collaboration, true collaborative leadership. And that's hard, kind and compassionate leadership. It's not soft. It's really, really important that we are able to be compassionate leaders in the way that we approach our work. Hannah, is that true from your experience? I'm, you know, talking about compassionate leadership and and um, I could imagine in your role being at that service delivery end that there's a lot of day-to-day immediate decisions you need to make and sometimes that's really hard and, and how do you do that and stay compassionate and kind at the same time? So for me, I think especially being new in a leadership role, it's been really hard to kind of find my feet in terms of balancing compassion and authority. So being empathetic, but also being assertive when needed, 
it's definitely challenging and I think you definitely you need to have that person-centered approach so it's not one fits all you need to know who you're speaking to with you need to look at your audience you need to look at what outcome you're trying to achieve you need to take in environmental considerations especially when dealing with personal issues it can be really really complex and as you say working in a fast-paced environment there's decisions that need to be made every day formal informal decisions and you get to an end of the day and you so much has happened and that kind of self-reflection is really really important to to look back and to really reflect on, on the decisions you've made and the reasons behind them and to know that you've been able to manage compassion and leadership and you've kind of done it for the right reasons. What's going to keep you here? What's going to keep you working in the health and care system? It's messy. You've got newspaper headlines about what's not working. It feels enormous etc so what's going to keep you going in your leadership careers for me I think if I had to sum up in one word it would be impact maybe two words sustainable impact that's what will keep me here it's kind of what drove me to to join the NHS in the first place but I think that the workforce um, and and the NHS and the wider sector really tired Covid was huge and recovery from Covid in some ways has been even harder um, because of the burnout that exists within the sector but I mean there's still no lack of passion to, to you know enable and make change to, to patients so I think it's sustainable impact and within that speaking to, to Rini's points is about health equity I think what would keep me going is if I think that focus remains stays and is acted upon so it's you know it's not just about recovery from COVID and getting back to where we were before it's about being further ahead and it's about, you know, those things that were brought to light, not shying away from them and really engaging and, and confronting them head on um, and making sustainable change. But yeah, and, and inequity has to be a part of that. Otherwise, I feel like we wouldn't have really learned anything at all. I think for me, working in the social care sector, there's a strong sense of community. There's that common kind of mission and passion for creating positive change. We all feel enabled in some way to do that we all feel empowered to do that and that's really great the satisfaction of that and the fact that it aligns with my own personal values is is something that encourages me to continue working in the sector and stick it out when we face hard times as well and and Rini yeah I, I I just I care too much to give it up I think a lot of my colleagues, peers would say, like I would probably say that it's very hard for me to let something go. So for me, like when I, when I think about health inequity, it, it boils my blood. I've seen it firsthand personally. I've seen it on the wider scales directly working in health policy, you know, the end of life, death is considered an equalizing event. It's not. There are huge inequities in end-of-life experience. There are huge inequities in, in mental health services, across just across healthcare in the piece. I can't imagine ever not wanting that to change. What keeps me in this place and what keeps me willing to put myself in very uncomfortable positions and sometimes unsafe spaces you know, going in and, and, and advocating for unpopular uh, policy interventions, for example, what keeps me going is, I'm not, this, this might sound really big headed, but it's our generation of people in this sector. They give me a lot of hope. 
and future generations too coming up um, behind us give me a lot of hope. Their lack of tolerance for inequitable practice, their lack of tolerance for for discrimination in the workplace, for um, for rigid um, egocentric white male audiences, their lack of tolerance for that really gives me a lot of hope and empowers me and a lot of people that I know to be much more vocal when we're speaking out. So I think, yeah, that's what keeps me keep me here. It's, I don't want to say it's pure spite. It's not. It's 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 energy. It's, it's like vim. It's the only kind of way I can characterize it. Just to add to that, Joe, um, it's people like Rini and Hannah that would keep me here. Yeah. Like I said, it's really easy, I think, to get bogged down in how much work there is to do and how difficult it is. But I think when I meet people who are as courageous, passionate and talented as Rini and Hannah, then you know, it gives me enough energy for the next couple of years to carry on going because I know that these people exist in the system. So yeah, people people like yourselves. Hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah, back at you. Absolutely. <laughs> That's brilliant. Brilliant. I, I mean I've absolutely loved working with you and talking with you all this afternoon. It's been an absolute privilege to meet the future, meet people who are so inspirational in your leadership roles. The three of you are absolutely inspirational, so please hold on to that. I think deep down you know that, but you are so you offer me so much hope for the future as well. So um, fantastic to, to 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 discuss this with you. And unfortunately, that's all we've got time for today. Thank you to Hannah, Rini, and Beth for joining me. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you, Joe. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. You can find the show notes for this episode and all of our previous episodes at www.kingsfund.org.uk forward slash KF podcast. The show notes for this episode and all our previous episodes can be found at www.kingsfund.org.uk forward slash KF podcast. And you can get in touch with us via Twitter. Our account is at the Kings Fund. The producer for this episode was Emma Sheffield and it has been edited by Bespoken Media. Don't forget to subscribe, share, rate and review this episode wherever you get your podcast. And of course, thank you for listening. We hope you can join us next time. Mm